This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Is that better now? Yeah, okay, I want. <laughs> I want to talk tonight just a little bit about kind of keeping yourself spiritually fresh. And, um, you know, this idea of we're in a relationship with a being that we can't even see makes this enterprise a bit tricky because we're trying to move toward and open ourselves up to, in a very honest way, to a relationship with the living God. Human relationships, friendships, marriages are tough enough, much less with someone who's invisible. So the challenge is to try to figure out, you know, some paths or some tricks, that's probably a cheap way to say it, uh, some, some things to try that will help you sort of keep fresh and open and move in your journey in spirituality. And so the first kind of thing I'd like to talk to you about is just really aware, being aware of and dealing with the bad stuff you've got. I'm talking about the ways in which we know that we let, we're not fully loving God or fully loving our neighbor or in some way being disobedient. Um, it seems like the best thing that we do is bad things. And somehow I think what we need to understand if we're going to, to have a relationship with God is that we need to realize he's inviting us to simply talk about it with God. Um, if you and I were in some kind of a tiff, we would probably avoid each other, right? If we saw each other at church, we might kind of go the other way. If we saw each other at the mall, we might go a little different direction. It's just because we feel weird. If, if you don't confess, it, you really won't feel comfortable with God. And, and you'll, you need to get it out or you won't stay fresh if you do, unless you do. Repentance is this kind of, one of the foundations of the Christian faith. And it's kind of like a shower Right? Uh, it's a good policy to take one daily. <laughs> because otherwise you stinketh. <laughs> and in some ways, I think we end up stinking, right? In our attitudes, in our heart. And, but what we, God wants us to do is simply just come to him and confess our failures to him. The good news is, he's okay with us being stupid. He's okay with our junk. Right? In fact, the text in Psalm 103 says, starting in verse 8, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sin deserves. How many are happy about that? Yeah. Or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. 
as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. In other words, he's not freaked out if you're not all that great at what you do. Right? J.I. Packer, who's a wonderful uh, theologian, wrote this, quote, There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. End quote. What's hard for us to realize is that as much as we feel kind of less than and as much as we want to cower, we see that in the first time that disobedience manifests itself in the Genesis narrative, what do they do? They try to hide. They try to cover themselves up. There's something in us that always wants to you know, pull away when we realize that we're not all that we feel we should be. And yet God is the one who, looking at us, knows exactly what we're like, is not thrown by what we like, or what we're like, like we're thrown by ourselves. He never is. That's why it is absolutely safe to admit you're a toad before God. It's, it's not like you're telling God something he doesn't already know when you confess something in your attitudes and confess something in your actions. It's not like God's surprised by your failure. Uh, and it's also, the good news is that God's mercy always triumphs over any sense of judgment. He's always, always moving toward it. All he asks us to do is come to him and own it. The te- scripture says we just are to confess it. I love this in 1 John 1, 9. It was probably one of my most favorite verses as a young person, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I remember as a young guy trying to figure out how to live a life of faith and seeming to always fail more than I seem to win. And I remember saying to God, I, I just feel like I'm, I just am a failure. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me from this text, I am more faithful to forgive you than you are faithful to sin. In other words, we can't beat God. As much as we goof up, as much as we seem to fail in loving him and loving our neighbor, there's no way that God ever pulls back from us. And there's no way that he is shocked by us. He always is open to us, always welcoming us. Why? Because God does not want our lives to be covered and controlled by sin. He wants us to know that we can come to him just like we are with our stuff and he's not making that an issue between us. Why is that so important? Because sin is really just the ways we try to resolve things for ourselves. And what he wants us to do is realize our stuff doesn't work, just come to him and begin to let him show us how we can move toward healthier patterns and healthier life. But in the midst of that, because it takes a while to figure that out, it is safe to come to him. One of the great prayers in the Book of Common Prayer that, I, that you pray every day, or at least or if you pray the, the way the book is written, twice a day, it goes like this. It's, it is a moment of reflection to think about what it is that has happened today, the ways that I've been, uh, have cooperated with God, the ways maybe I have been less than kind or less than human, uh, selfish, all those kind of things. So you sort of muse for a couple of moments, and then the prayer goes, most merciful God, 
We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may walk in your ways and delight in your will for the glory of your name. It's a beautiful prayer and it's a way that you can keep fresh in your spirituality. Simply just safely come to God and say, you know what, I'm not very good at this, but I'm but flesh and you receive me like I am. Beautiful. Number two way that can help you stay fresh is to forgive others. This is the harder one, I think. Because, you know, the more I get to know some people, the better I like my dog. Amen. Right? Jesus said offenses will come. We don't usually stand on that promise. Offenses will come. Jesus warns us about not forgiving. Paul warns us about not forgiving. He makes the statement at one point that if you let anger pervade in your mind, you can get angry, but don't sin, he says. And the way he says that it becomes sin is when you're repeating it over and over. I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that over and over until you go into the next day. It kind of lingers and your anger gets situated and seated in your heart. Paul said that's the way we give place to the devil is by living in that place where you're not forgiving. Forgiveness means it's forgiving. In other words, it's for, if you're in unforgiveness, you can't give the person a kind thought. If you're in unforgiveness, you're in ungiving. You can't give the person a smile. You can't give the person a conversation. You're in ungiving. And so what we're called to do is to be in a place where we release people from the, the stuff that they've done to us. The basis of that is not that they deserve it. The basis of that is because we got over it ourselves. The basis of that is the same basis God forgives us the cross. And what we're really saying is when I forgive my neighbor, I forgive my friend, what we're saying is the cross was enough for God to release sin from people. It's enough for me to release the sin people do to me. Because for us not to forgive on the basis of the cross is basically to say, you know, God, I appreciate the fact that the cross is enough for you, but it isn't enough for me. I want them to own it, I want them to suffer, I want them to feel the pain they've given to me. But the crazy thing about it is that forgiving people is so difficult. And it, 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 if you've been legitimately hurt, it can feel like a machine gun, the thoughts of it coming over and over to your mind. To forgive it is to release it every time, to send it away every time, and it's really difficult. Especially if the relationship that you have with that person or center is still a hurtful one. Right? So they've offended you, you're hurt, but they continue to hurt. There's some people, honestly, the only way you can forgive them is kind of from a distance because they're so toxic to your life. And, and they're, I call them the zoo people. Because when you go to the zoo, you know how when you come up against an animal that's in the zoo, you, you, you can come right up to them, but there's a protection. Right? They can't get you. There's some people you have to have some boundaries because they, they're so difficult and so hurtful to you, but you still have to forgive them even if they're zoo people. We're called to do this. The, it, and the forgiveness is a process more than a feeling. I think that some of us get tricked because we have this offense and then we think about it, we're mad at the person. We say, Lord, help me, I wanna forgive them. We pray it, we sometimes can process in our prayer and feel, oh, I think I've, I've forgiven them. And then we, a day passes or an hour passes and bam, we're right there in unforgiveness and, and it's fresh on our brains. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm not forgiving them. That, that forgiveness isn't an event. 
that happens to you and you go on. Forgiveness is a commitment. It's the idea of every time the, the circumstance or the remembrance of the offense comes to you, you simply send it away. It, the word for forgiveness in Greek is aphaimi. It means to send away, to let it go, right? And, and Jesus, the way that he addresses it, the disciples come to him and say, should I forgive my brother seven times, which seemed like a lot, right, to them. And Jesus said, no, seven times seven. One other text says seven times 70. Another text says a day. That's the 490 principle, right? That means that you're supposed to forgive a person if they sin against you 490 times a day. That's a lot, right? How much more God for us? But the idea, nobody's gonna sin against you 490 times, but I'll tell you what will happen is you'll think about what they did to you 490 times. It'll come back to you, back to you, back to you. And all he's saying is keep sending it away. The beauty of the 490 principle is that when you send it away, by the time you get to 300, you're kind of getting used to it. And if you're doing it 490 times a day for a month, it's, it'll maybe turn to 300 times a day, and maybe it'll turn to 200 times a day, eventually 30 times a day, and then you run into them, it's back up to 490 again, right? <laughs> but the idea is forgiveness is not that you felt it. The forgiveness is not that you resolved it. Forgiveness is the fact that you forgive. It's this commitment in your heart that when it comes back to you, you say, I have decided before God by his grace that every time that comes back to me, I'm going to release it. Eventually, It'll get to the point where it really, you don't forget it. I don't think forgiveness is us forgetting it. God apparently has that capacity alone. But it takes the pain out of it. It takes the sting out of it. And you can feel safe when you get around someone that has been, had been hurt you in some way because you process it over time with the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's a beautiful thing. Corey Ten Boom lived as a prisoner in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, and she saw all of these really unspeakable crimes that were committed against innocent people, including what was done to her own sister. They, um, she was eventually murdered. And Corey wrote this. She said, quote, in the concentration camp where I was imprisoned many years ago, sometimes bitterness and hatred tried to enter my heart when people were so cruel to my sister and me. Then I learned this prayer. It's a thank you based on Romans 5.5. 5. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart the love of God through the Holy Spirit who was given to me. Thank you, Father, that your love in me is victorious over the bitterness in me and the cruelty around me. After I prayed it, I experienced the miracle that there was no room for bitterness in my heart anymore. Will you learn to pray that prayer too? She asks. If you are a child of God, you have a great task in your prison. You are a representative of the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings. He will use you to win others for Christ. But you can't, you say. I can't either, but Jesus can. The Bible says be filled with the Spirit. If you give room in your life to the Holy Spirit, then he can work through you, making you the salt of the earth and a shining light in your prison, end quote. What would it be like? What, is, what if this is the biggest way that God uses people in the world? Not that we just confront people with an idea of the gospel or truth as part of it, but maybe it's about living in a way that surprises people because we're unoffendable. That somehow when they slap us, instead of us responding out of the pain of that slap to slap them back, we turn, like Jesus said, the other cheek which means we're responding to them out of a place of health, out of a place of strength, out of a place of healing. 
instead of the place of staying? And what if it's that kind of life that catches people off guard, that, that they don't understand and somehow God uses that kind of response to them as a way to touch them and to bring them closer to him? And what if that kind of life where we're responding with God's presence is one of the ways we stay fresh? If you always live out of your pain, if you always live out of your sting, if you hold grudges and don't walk in forgiveness, it will be a very difficult thing for God to be very real to you. It will destroy your spiritual life. Number three, third way to stay spiritually fresh is find the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> it's for you, you know. What, what gives you a rise, right? What, what, what floats your boat? Right, my wife, Gail, she's a singer. She loves to put on worship music, you know, and, and just can go to heaven doing that. I, I love worship live, but I don't really listen to music, really. I just, I, where I go to heaven's reading and more contemplative kind of behaviors. I feel God's presence pressing on me with the quieter I get. So I don't try to make her get quiet, and she doesn't try to make me sing much. See, some of us, you have to learn about your personality, about what it is that captures you. Some of you love maybe to pray spontaneous, open prayers and just share your heart with God. And so when you do that, you find in the car, wherever you are, you do that, you find that there's a kind of glow. Your heart gets warmed. Well, do that. Find the things that you love and do that. Some, some love to pray tongues prayer. I'm a closet tongue talker myself, right? And, uh, uh, and, and I'll find myself sometimes just praying in the spirit. They call it praying in the spirit. I'll pray in tongues. And, and oftentimes when I'm preparing messages or when I'm thinking about stuff, I'll think as much as I can think and then I'll stop and I'll just shift into this prayer language and just soak there. And man, sometimes, you know, God gets on me like a chicken on a June bug. I mean, I just feel his presence, right, in my life. It's just awesome. Um, then there's this contemplative prayer. Well, contemplative prayer is lots of silence. It's kind of sitting quietly and imagining God's presence. Sometimes you'll get an image in your mind, contemplative prayer people will tell you, like maybe going underwater, you know, sinking down deep and the quiet of that moment that you would have. And it's just quiet. You're just focusing on nothing but the fact that you're, you're right before God, not really using words. Because words, you know, sometimes with the people that are closest to you, you don't have to use words. There's a kind of presence that you enjoy together. Contemplative prayers like that, or some people use the example of like floating down a lazy river and all the people are on the banks and all the activities on the banks and all your concerns are on the banks, but you're not with that. You're just floating right down and just trying to lay and enjoy the fact that God's presence is with you. You may find that that opens up something for you just try to navigate to stuff that something warms your heart. For others, they find scripture, well, all of us will find scripture, all these things are helpful, but some of us find scripture amazingly transformative. The, the, the ways in which it weaves itself into our lives and the aliveness of it, in the preaching of it, in the reading of it, some people just absolutely, that's where they get ignited, studying, reading. There's a, an old ancient way of approaching scripture called Lectio Divina, and what that means is that you, you read the text or out loud and then you, or have somebody read it, and then you sort of listen to it in quiet. You know, like we did the, you know, something like quietly sit in his presence and then somebody reads something famous like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. And you sort of soak on that. And then go back again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Soak on it. The Lord is my shepherd. Usually they do it three times. You shall not want. I shall not want. He makes me lie down. It's amazing how it's doing something a passage repeatedly in quiet and silence, and all of a sudden you get captured by stuff. Uh, that might be something that you find out might warm your heart before God. Um, making your singing more than just singing, right? So if we're here tonight when we're singing, you can make, if you do sing or you find that, just entering in beyond the song itself can be amazing. Finding God in creation. You know, this, the, historically the church has always said there are two books of God. The Bible and creation. That something about creation captures us. Uh, years ago, I was driving down the road in Wisconsin. The first church I'm pastoring, this had to be in the early 80s. I'm driving down the road, and I heard out of the blue in my heart, I think it was the Holy Spirit, or I have a something. That, something came to me I didn't imagine it myself. And I think it was the Holy Spirit. And I heard this, you're a caveman. <laughs> thinking, what? You know, so you're, and the image in my heart was that I was so internal, I never looked around me. I never looked at the sun, never looked at the trees. Never, I'd never been a external, you know, go for walks, look at the things. When I go to an ocean, it disappears in about five minutes. I'm just so internal. So I started fighting to think, look and say, wait a minute, God is dancing in creation. You know, whether it's the trees or whether it's the sun. Remember Jesus talked about the sun as being God sending it and that he sends the sunshine and he sends the rain. He was saying that the very creation is a testimony of the activity of God. That's why some of you, when you go for walks or you do a hunting or whatever you do, you know, you're going out there and you're thinking, you just feel like something's good here. This is beautiful. You're not unspiritual because you like that more than reading your Bible. You're kind of reading the book of God. I mean, it's totally cool. Go for walks, do, you know, do whatever you do that, that kind of energizes you because you need to stay fresh, right? <laughs> Here's another thing. Seizing the holiness of good work is awesome. In other words, there's a Celtic tradition in the church where the Celts, these are guys from England who were involved that were that early, this is in the 300s, 400s. And um, uh, they were touched by the church, but the, the church wasn't deeply engaged with them because the church expanded with the Roman Empire and then as the Roman Empire contracted, they were kind of left on their own. So they developed a lot of their own traditions in the Celtic tradition. But one of the cool things about the Celts was that everything they did, they thought was worship. Right? If they went to church and sang, if they read, heard the scriptures read to them, if they heard the preaching priests to them, but when they went out, when they milked the cow, that was worship to them. So they had a prayer for milking cows, a prayer for going on walks, a prayer for washing dishes, a prayer for cleaning up, you know, a prayer for uh, working the fields. They had prayers for everything, and it was kind of a worship. I think this is one of the tragedies of the modern era, is we forget that we're supposed to do everything in the name of Jesus. Right, that in some way, whatever kind of good work, now if you're selling drugs, repent. But, but if it's good work, right, and you're helping people, you should look at it and say, I'm helping people. In the morning when I do, when I pray over the, I get up early and I usually have, uh, I do 
bread and peanut butter and bananas on top of my peanut butter and my coffee and my cream. Uh, and, and so I'll, 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 my little routine, I'm up pretty early and I do that. And when I pray over it, I say, you know, I pray the prayer of blessing. And I say, thank you, Lord, for the banana people. Because the, I, it's, I'm really lacking these bananas right now. Thank you for the peanut butter people. Thank you that they grew the peanut butter and the peanuts. <laughs> How does this work, right? So <laughs> they grew the peanuts, right? And they harvested them and they put them, they, somehow they processed it. There's all these hundreds of people have been involved with my peanut butter, bread, and bananas, much less the coffee. Thank you for the coffee people, Jehovah. Uh, what is it? The Lord that awakeneth thee. Java, yeah. Um, you know, I'm very thankful for the beans. I'm very thankful for all the people. That, and, and so in when I do that, I think how good it is that I have this in front of me. Those of you that work most of your fields, think about the good you're bringing. And realize it's a worship. Do what is under the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord. I can able to help this person. I can help this person in this way. I'm bringing good with these kids. I'm doing this. And actually start making it a worship. You might be surprised to find out you can start having the dawning of God's presence like you do when you sing here. Or like with you when you open up in prayer, that your actual life can become more like a worship. Hmm? Very beautiful. Uh, or the last thing about embracing something that might float your boat is some of you may want to think about embracing some of the practices of the early church. In the Didache, it's a book, a little booklet that was written about 50 CE, which is about uh, just a few years after Jesus died, rose. And this is actually before the first book of the New Testament was written, which was Paul's Galatians, was written about 55 CE or 80. And um, so this book is written, a little booklet is written about, a fi about five years before that. And in it, it explains, it encourages people in the church to do certain things. And one of the things it encourages them to do is pray the Our Father three times a day. It's very ritualistic kind of thing, right? It's a prayer you're not making up from your heart, you're just saying it. But to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They were to say that three times a day. There's something, I think, about some of these practices that might surprise you. You know, we're pretty committed as Americans and as evangelicals, charismatics, to spontaneity. Sometimes, we, sometimes we're bound by it. It has to be from my heart, or I have to make up the words, or there's something problematic about it. But you might be surprised by some of the prayers that have been formed over hundreds of years. There are what's called breviaries, they're prayer books. One of them is the Book of Common Prayer, where you can, you, you, you can enter into and pray, and they're actually powerful kinds of prayers. I used to think I couldn't do them because I wanted to make it up from my heart, but it dawned on me one day that I don't make up the songs we sing. I mean, I can make up a song, but it would bore you silly. And most of you, if you just made up songs right now, we wouldn't want to sing with you, right? If having a great artist that spends time crafting poetic words and then we sing it together and we make it our songs, that you can do that not just with songs, you can do that with words and with prayers. So an example of this, um, um, here's, a, you know, if, I, if we said, if we were talking about personal dedication, I mean, I could pray, Lord, I, I just want to be more dedicated to you. I want to be more consistent with you. I want, I want you to move in my life in a way that I'm saying yes more often. And there's something beautiful about just making up a prayer like that. But then here's a prayer that's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years in the church that are in one of these breviaries. Here, here's how it goes. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds. 
So fill our imagination, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray you, as you will. And always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's slap your mama beautiful right there. Now, that may not, you may not like that, but you might be surprised by some of these kinds of things. Another example of this is about winning other people to Jesus. So I can pray, Lord, you know, would you help us reach more people for Christ? Would you help us make Jesus famous? Would you help us um, touch lives and, and, and let you be known? And it's not like that's not beautiful. That's beautiful, right? Um, but then listen to this one. And some of us are better spontaneous prayers than others, right? Some people sh- shouldn't talk. But, no, God hears it. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. That's just what I think. Anyway, here's the prayer. This, is a, a, this has been prayed for hundreds of years. Listen to it. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Sweet. Beautiful, right? Um, One of the other ancient practices that you might consider is following the Christian calendar. You know, some of you did stuff like this in your, before you actually had an encounter with Christ and all this sounds dead and you thought it was all dead. Uh, that, That was true for me as well. The problem was I realized at one point it wasn't that. I was just dead. It wasn't the stuff I was doing was dead. I had no life, no way to ride it, no way to give myself in it. And so I've rediscovered this. Things like Advent. Uh, we're going into, we start, Advent starts December 1st. Uh, uh, it's kind of the beginning of the Christian year. Not January 1st, that's the American year. The Christian year is January 1st, or excuse me, December 1st, or the first Sunday in Advent. So you should say Happy New Year on Advent Sunday for us, right? But Advent is a, a time when you enter into the pain of Israel longing for the, for the coming of Messiah. And you read texts, if you follow these seasons, they actually have texts assigned to them that help you enter into the story. And not only are you entering into the story of, of the Messiah coming for the Jews and the pain and the ache and the anticipation of that, we flip it in the middle of that Advent period into our longing for the return of Jesus. Right, which is the second advent. And so you sort of intentionally enter into a little bit depression. <laughs> Most of us just, you know, only have joy, we have depression, it's just what we experience, and, and, and you're gonna do that anyway. But, but intentionally entering into some of these seasons, there's times of joy where you embrace it. You don't necessarily feel joyful, but you embrace it because it's the season. And there's, there's ways, so you have Lent, and then you have Christmas tide, which is that, we call it Christmas, but it's actually 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas, Christmas tide. And there's readings that you do, and you intentionally celebrate, even if you don't feel like celebrating. There's some way that the texts call you. And then there's Epiphany, that's the moment where people begin to discover who Christ really was because he was sort of hidden, but the Magi find him out, right? And they say, you know, they follow the star and you celebrate this idea of God making himself known because a lot of times he's present in our lives and we don't see him. But there's times when he makes himself known. And then there's Lent, oh, that sucks. But it's, 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 it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's horrible all mixed together. And then you have Eastertide and then you have Pentecost. They have all, so my point is that there's gold in them hills. And some of you, if you've had a hard time, sort of, your faith has gotten a little cold or your faith has gotten a little dry, you might dare to think through what's available to you that might stir 
your heart. Because all of these things that we do have these theological trajectories and, and, and actually can make life rich for you. One more thing about this is the fact that we do Eucharist or we do the, we do the Lord's pr- pr- Supper every Sunday. Man, when you come to that table or when you pick up the elements and you're receiving them, we know that they represent the body and blood of Christ. But Jesus didn't say, on the, at, when he did the, the Lord's, when the thing was instituted, he didn't say, this bread is kind of like my body. This cup is kind of like my blood. He said, this is my body and this is my blood. Say, what does he mean? I have no idea what that means. But he didn't say it's like it. He said some way that it is. Think of the implications of that. When he said that to the people that were listening to him the first time that we have record of it in John, everybody said, you're not eating your body and drinking your blood, Jesus. This ain't cool. And everybody scattered. And then he looked at the apostles and he said, are you guys gonna leave me too? And Peter goes, where are we gonna go? You know, you got the words of eternal life. What are we gonna do? So Jesus doesn't try to blunt it at all. He just said in some way, when we come together as a people and we grab that bread and we grab that cup that in some way it is for us the body and the blood of Christ. What does that mean? What could that mean? What does it mean when you take putting it in your mouth? Is it just a memory tool? Or are you saying, oh my gosh, Jesus, I'm opening myself up in some physical way. You're coming into my life and I'm taking this cup in some way. You're coming into my life. And it's not so much what I'm trying to feel is what does this do to me? How does this form me? How does Christ entering into me in this kind of interesting, odd, physical way, how might that transform me? Dare to think it. Dare to experiment in your mind with it. Dare to reverence it. I mean, Paul is the one that said, if you eat it in the wrong way, it's going to kill you. That ought to freak us out a little. So if we eat it in the right way, maybe it would help us. Jesus called it the meal of eternal life. Do you ever think about that? When you take it next time, you think, you know, vitamins, you know, or stuff, and you, you take it with a little expectation, it's going to do something. I mean, this is more than vitamins. I mean, if we brought... If we brought the, you know, if, if we knew that we found the cape that Jesus or the, the clothing that Jesus was wearing, when the woman at the when the woman that was uh, had infirmities touched the hem of his garment, remember that, and, and power went out from Jesus and she was healed because she touched the hem of his garment. What if we found that garment? I'm telling you, there'd be people lined up for miles to come and see and and possibly touch that garment or why because there's some story that is associated with its physicality and how power was associated with it we've got something more than his clothes we have his body we have his blood I, I just wonder how it might inform us and warm us if we dared to believe what Jesus said to the angels are going you okay so my point is in all this is whatever floats your boat, which might be a, a, a several of these or a combo of these, you should experiment because you have to fight to stay fresh. Just like you would in a friendship, just like you would in a marriage, contend, cry out. Remember Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Do you do it earnestly? I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And here's the good news about that. God will come if you seek him. If you seek him, you will find him. He set it up. It's rigged. You seek him, 
you'll find him. And here's the last text. It's Hosea 6. It says, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, God will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. If you seek him, he will come. And you'll have freshness in your soul.